Hello and welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network. I am your host, Doug. Uh, with me today is Tiffany. And Good morning. We also have with us a special guest for an interview today, optometrist Reshma Seth. Welcome, Reshma. Welcome. Hello. <laughs> so, um, Reshma is an optometrist in Australia with a passion for alternative and holistic approaches to health and well-being. Uh, having graduated in optometry with therapeutics, she has also studied and obtained a diploma in fine arts, vibrational medicine, remedial massage, and feng shui. So that's quite quite a basket of modalities there that you've uh, you've got under your belt. Yeah. Um... I think I've always been interested in alternative approaches to health and healing. Um, what drew me to optometry was I was in my final year at school. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I knew I didn't want to do medicine or law or anything like that. Mm. And I went to the open days of the universities and um, went up to the optometry clinic and the fourth year students there had contact lenses bubbling away and an eye exhibit and pictures of um, the back of the eyes where you could actually see, you know, systemic eye diseases. And I thought, this might be me. I've always mm. liked working with, you know, or, you know, looking into eyes, eyes being the windows of the soul. Mm. Um, and I thought that that's, that's me. Don't yeah. mind working with, with eyes, rather work with eyes than teeth or feet or anything else. <laughs> <laughs> so, but when I um, graduated, I still had an interest in, you know, alternative therapies in um, just a more holistic approach. Cause I sort of, don't want to just look at eyes as just eyes. Eyes are part of the whole body. So I was mm -hmm. interested in, in, you know, further study. Mm. Um, um, and the diploma in fine arts, where that comes from, was my whole um, schooling life I'd done really academic subjects. Mm. And I'd never really had the chance to explore, um, you know, my more artistic side. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, you know, and so I, I um, uh, applied for a, a spot in a fine arts diploma and I, I don't even know how I got in. I was meant to submit a portfolio. I didn't even have, you know, any drawings to my name, but I <laughs> put together something and managed to get in and ah. um, spent the year doing some photography and um, drawing, sculpting, painting. Very cool. Yeah, that was really good. And was that like before or after you went for optometry? No, so I'd finished, I'd graduated optometry, uh, I was working, I did some traveling and backpacking, came back, thought, huh, I need to, <laughs> need to keep doing something else. So I did the fine arts and uh, enjoyed, thoroughly enjoyed doing that. And then I saw an ad for a naturopathic um, diploma. Mm. And so I, I did that for a year. Um, and part of that first year, I studied iridology, herbal medicine, homeopathy, mm. um, you know, uh, nutrition, uh, was really, really interesting. And at the end of that first year, I got my diploma of remedial massage. I didn't get my clinic hours up enough to qualify to get my diploma of iridology. Right. But it's something that I tend to just kind of use in the background with my um, optometry practice. I don't actually have an iridology practice. Right. Mm. Well, maybe we can talk about iridology later um, because sure. I kind of wanted to start with more of the conventional um, optometry kind of stuff. So, I mean... Well, I guess, first of all, like what optometry in Australia, is it like, is, is being an optometrist pretty much the same anywhere you go? No. So there's, Yeah. There's... And, and can you tell us what the difference is between optometry and ophthalmology? Because I mm. think a lot of people get that mixed up. Yeah. 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 So 
Um, optometry in Australia basically means it's somebody you go to for primary eye care. You go there to, you know, check your vision, get, you know, a script if you need glasses or contact lenses, and also get your ocular health checked out. So if there's any eye diseases, we are trained to pick that up. We can either monitor or if we need to refer, then, then we'll refer to an ophthalmologist. An ophthalmologist is basically an eye surgeon. Mm. So they're people that have actually gone and done six or seven years of medicine, and then worked, you know, as a registrar in a hospital and done then another four years of ophthalmology where oh, they wow. specialize just in the eyes. And that's general ophthalmology. Hmm. So within ophthalmology itself, you have specialists that just work on one part of the eye, like wow. the retina or a corneal specialist or a glaucoma specialist. So hmm. you can actually then get specialists within specialists. So wow. it's, yeah. Wow. That but, sounds intense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so an optometrist is basically like you, you, is it all kind of geared more towards like glasses, like people who, who need, who have vision problems and, and need pretty much lenses? glasses and yeah. an eye check. So an you wouldn't check. really necessarily go to an ophthalmologist because specialists are quite expensive. Generally mm. in Australia, they don't tend to bulk bill. So they're more secondary, um, care, you know, primary care is the people you go to. So if, say if you felt like you had eye fatigue or having some eye problems, you'd, you'd, you'd come and book into the optometrist first. Mm -hmm. And then we check all of that out, but we'd also check your ocular health and see if there right. was anything going on there. And it's good to have baseline data anyway. So even though there mightn't be anything pertinent happening right now, two years down the track, four years down the track, you come back and see us. And all of a sudden we're seeing that your pressures are a lot higher mm -hmm. than they were four years ago. What's going on? So, you know, at, Optometry, I will say in, in the States, appears to be slightly different mm. in that they're more optometry doctors. They're still not ophthalmologists, but they have more territory to use um, pharmaceutical, pharmacological agents. Mm. They can inject, um, you know, people in the eyes for things like macular degeneration. So mm. they seem to have more scope to do that from what I can see in the UK and the EU. It's pretty much the same as Australia. Mm. Yeah. Right. Okay. Interesting. So what, like, what, ha I mean, most, a lot of people have probably had an eye exam before, but like, you know, maybe from your perspective, what, what do you do when somebody comes in and are getting checked out? Yeah. So usually uh, the first thing I, I like to find out is why are they there? Like, is it just a general checkup? Do they have specific problems? Because one thing we got taught at uni is address their problem. So if they come in for reading glasses and sure, you might detect that they've got something that needs urgent referral. You better make sure that you've taken care of their need for reading glasses or they're going to tell everybody you're a terrible <laughs> optometrist. Right. So history taking is important. So I, I like to know, you know, what they use their eyes for, mm. um, you know, what systemic um, medications they might be taking, um, you know, genetic family history, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, and then we check your vision. Um, on a Snellen chart, which basically the term 2020 or 66 just means the size of the print that you can read at either 20 feet or six meters away. Ah, okay. A lot of optometry rooms are not six meters long. So we have a, a smaller room, say usually about three meters, but we double up using a, a mirror system where the, the chart is reflected a further three ah. meters in the mirror. Interesting. Um, and then we check your prescription to see what's going on with the eyes. If there's a refractive error, and then we do the ocular health check where we check the pressure in the eyes, the anterior segments of the front of the eye. Mm -hmm. And then we usually use some kind of, um, you know, either an ophthalmoscope or a camera to view the back of the eye, which has, you know, the retina, the optic nerve. The, that's how you can see blood vessels, those sorts of things and record it all mm -hmm. and then go from there. So that's generally a routine eye exam. Right. 
And do you ever get people like asking you why you're taking their family history and medications oh, and yeah. all that kind of stuff? Yeah, <laughs> I, I get weird looks like, you know, are you being nosy? Like, why do you need to know that? And quite often I'll explain to them, you know, um, there are some systemic medications like corticosteroids, for example, prednisone, that can actually have side effects, ocular side effects. So uh -huh. if someone's on prednisone for a very long time, we need to monitor their pressures because it can cause glaucoma. We need to check their lens because it can cause cataracts. So mm. there's a reason why we're asking those questions. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So are people born with perfect eyesight? I'm, that's probably not the case because I've seen a lot of little babies that wear glasses. But what are some of the things that can make people's eyesight not be 20-20? A whole host of reasons. So sometimes it can be genetic. Um, sometimes it can be congenital. So with things like cataracts, it's usually something that happens later in life. But there are congenital cataracts that people can get born with. Um, it's a bit hard to say. Most kids are actually born slightly long-sighted, which is, is actually what we expect to see. Mm. And then as they sort of grow and the eyes grow as part of, of their bodies and they get to about, say, anywhere from tw um, 10 to 12, that progressively that long-sightedness should slowly be decreasing. So right. it's actually normal for us to see that there is a refractive error with, with children. Mm. And so just, just to cover that, because <clears throat> I don't know if everybody's familiar with the terms. So if somebody is long-sighted, it means they can see far, like far distances okay, but they have trouble seeing things up close. Yes. And then nearsightedness would be the opposite, where yeah. you can see up close pretty well, but distances is where you start to have problems. Yeah, yeah. And that's called myopia. For, for short-sighted. For yeah. short-sightedness. And, and is it hyperopia, the yeah. other one? Okay. Yeah. And then there is another one called astigmatism, which just means that uh, the shape of the eyeball isn't perfectly spherical. So the way mm. I explain it to my patients, if they say, well, what's a stigma is what they often say. And I say, <laughs> it's an astigmatism. And what it means is that instead of your eyes being perfectly round like a basketball, mm -hmm. it's shaped more like a football. Mm. And where it's elongated is where you need extra power to correct it. And, you know, that could be anywhere, if you can think about a protractor, anywhere from zero to 180 degrees. Mm. So you could have vertical astigmatism or oblique or horizontal. It just means that when we uh, prescribe um, glasses to correct your eyesight and give you clarity, mm -hmm. the lens needs extra power ground in that particular direction. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. So what, I guess going back to Tiff's question, like what, what other things can, you know, like there's all kinds of like myths about what's going to ruin your vision and stuff. I remember my mom used to always make me sit back from the TV because she was like, it's going to wreck your vision. And people will say things like, you know, being on a computer too often or something like that can kind or of. stop trying to read in low light. Yeah. Reading yeah. in low light. Like, all yeah. these kinds of things like that cause sort of, I make cause eye fatigue. Is that actually doing damage? I wouldn't say that it's necessarily doing damage, but it's certainly causing eye strain. So mm. one of the big problems um, with, well, life in, in the modern day is our exposure to uh, a lot of screen time, whether it's, you know, TVs, smartphones, gadgets, devices, iPads, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think what the current research is showing is that blue light exposure from LED devices can be very, very harmful over a period of time, right. um, particularly to the lens and to the macula. Mm. So I don't know if I've digressed from your question. No, but... no, no, not at all. No, that's that's interesting, actually, because we've we've actually talked about um, blue light uh, on the show before yeah. and like how screens are particularly high in blue light. We've talked about it a lot in terms of 
the effects on sleep and melatonin. Yeah. Um, but uh, I don't know that we've talked about the mechanism of the eye exactly. So it's actually damaging to those things as well. It co basically, um, because it's uh, a shorter wavelength, it has more uh, energy. And mm. so it tends to cause photooxidation um, and stress basically to the cells of the, of the, the retina, to the nerve cells. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, repeated exposure over a long period of time basically uh, causes the retina to, you know, degrade over time. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, that's how you get macular degeneration coming on. And I can certainly say from when I first started practicing optometry, macular degeneration used to be something that you'd see mainly in older people, say, mm -hmm. you know, 70 plus. Mm -hmm. And now we're seeing it in, in people, you know, Sometimes in their mid forties, you you start to see some early signs of you know something happening at the macula. So, I think there's definitely something to it. And um, if it's not always possible to limit your screen time because mm -hmm. so much of what we do is computer based, mm -hmm. um, but if you have to stare at a screen, there are things that you can do. You can put you know I think there's programs like we were talking about the mm -hmm. other day with Flux and uh, mm -hmm. with iPads. There's night mode. Um, you can get you know orange. Um, tinted glasses mm -hmm. and a lot of prescription glasses. Well, certainly in Australia, I don't know about here, but there is a product called Blue Guard, which blocks a certain part of that blue wavelength. Not completely, because mm. in order to do it completely, you'd need orange or red glasses. Right. But it certainly does block out a, a, a fair bit of the the blue wavelength. So. Right. So I mean, that, that's probably a good idea. Then I mean, I know people. Um... You know, a, you know, a lot of people in kind of the the paleo community and stuff talk about using those sorts of uh, the software or wearing the glasses or something like that at night, because it's kind of like you know you're trying to stay um, within the circadian rhythm, the natural yeah. circadian rhythm. Yeah. But from what you're saying, it sounds like maybe it's something you might want to do all the time. I wouldn't wear the orange glasses all the time because mm. I think a certain amount of blue light is necessary. Okay. Um, and you, you probably get. I mean, depending on how much screen time, you probably get more of a dose from, from sunlight. But right. I think within context, it, it, it's okay. I think wearing orange glasses all the time would probably be counterproductive because you do right. need some degree of, of, of blue light exposure. Right. Okay. But I think if you're spending a lot of time, you know, uh, screen-based work, I, I think having a blue guard sort of a situation or even something that you can put an overlay or mm -hmm. one of those programs like Flux, for example, would be a good idea. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I remember, okay, I, I'll, I'll tell a bit of my story here. So I was, I needed glasses um, when I was a kid. Um, I guess it was probably around when, it's probably around when I was going through puberty, actually, that I started to, my vision started to kind of go off and I got prescribed glasses, but I hated them. Yeah. So I very rarely, if ever, wore them. It's kind of like, you know, if I went to a movie or if I was in class or something like that and had to read the board, then I'd put them on. But just walking around normally, I wouldn't have them. So anyway, at one point, um, much later in years, I actually lost my glasses. And it was just, see, I had read quite a bit about natural vision correction. And I had kind of um, come across this information that said that lenses actually are not so good for your eyes because your eyes become dependent on them and that your prescription your prescription will get kind of progressively worse as you go along. Um, as, and, you know, you'll always kind of need to get stronger and stronger glasses. It's like, it's like walking around with a crutch all the time. Mm. So, you know, I, I had this, these ideas in my head, and then when I lost my glasses, I was just like, well, forget it. I'm not going to bother replacing them. And that brings us today, and I still don't have any glasses. And I think that my vision is not perfect by any means, but I think it's pretty good. 
So this is a long roundabout way of kind of asking, are glasses good for our eyes? It kind of depends. I was actually going to ask you, do you know what your prescription was? It wasn't strong. Was it was it, like was minus 1.5 oh. or, or, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think scripts that are in the range of say zero to plus or minus two, mm. you can kind of get away without yeah. without glasses. I mean, it, it's a bit hard to say, to, to generalize, but um, a few years ago when I was, um, I, I was living in Sydney and I had a practice in Sydney, I, I was part of the uh, a group of optometrists called the Holistic Optometry Group. Mm. And they were really interesting because they would you know, convene, say, once a month and have, you know, guest speakers like, say, a chiropractor come out and mm. talk to, to the group about how, you know, certain manipulations to the back and the neck would increase um, blood flow through, you know, oh. to the orbit and could, you know, affect a slight change or improve vision or what have you. And it kind of makes sense if you're all sort of, you know, necks out of whack or you've got lots mm -hmm. of shoulder tension and things like that. So that was really interesting. And there was... um. Uh, a lady by the name of Janet Goodrich, who wrote mm. a book called Natural Vision Improvement. And we had someone from sort of her camp come out and, and talk to us about, you know, different eye exercises that you could, could do, um, things such as uh, palming, where you kind of rub your hands, your, your, your hands together, and you kind of rest the palms of your hands and overlap them over your eyes. Mm. Um, you know, what we... Um, now know about things like Reiki, where there are healing mm. centers from the palms of your hand. You're probably, you know, giving yourself some some Reiki as as part of that palming process. Mm. For for all we know, um, some of the other things they had were uh, sunning. So you'd mm. kind of basically uh, look at the sun through closed eyes, and you know you could do sort of circles with your eyes clockwise and um, counterclockwise. Jack Cruz has a lot of that stuff about mm. getting natural sunlight through the, to the eye. So there's probably something you know, in that, mm -hmm. um, you know, systemically anyway for the whole body. Um, and then they had things like, um, swinging your, uh, so looking at a pen and bringing that in close. So that's convergence exercises. So you, mm -hmm. you know, stare at a pen, say about 40 or 50 centimeters away, bring it in till it's about 10 centimeters away and do that, repeat that a couple of times. Then you kind of hold a, a pen or something with a bit of detail at about 40 centimeters, stare at that and then swing your glands to something in the distance with a bit of detail and swing right. back your, your um, focus backwards and forwards. And that tends to focus the muscles inside the eyes that are responsible for accommodation or focusing up close. And then there are other exercises you can do where you do, you know, big circles, um, you know, um, diagonals, things like that. Those um, exercises stretch the extraocular muscles that move the eye around. Um, I haven't actually seen any evidence-based literature about, you know, glasses being a crutch. Mm. Um, I think the natural vision improvement exercises work for the low prescription ranges. It's kind of like we were talking earlier. It's like a, having a gym membership. Mm. You've got to do those exercises on a fairly right. regular basis to see the difference. If you just sort of do it once a week, you know, you're not really going to, it's not really going to affect much of a change. Right. Um, I personally wear glasses. Um, I've started to need them for um, for reading up close. And I think it's it's more anecdotal that I've had patients say to me, oh, ever since I've started wearing glasses, I, I you know, I feel like I rely on them more and more. Mm. That may be true for a condition known as presbyopia, which is where the lens starts to become rigid from about the mid-40s and continues to get worse due to your mid-60s. I do not know why the human body is designed that way. Mm. Um I don't know that not wearing glasses 
for correcting presbyopia is going to make the presbyopia go away. I've got people in their 50s and how they get around it is they just stretch their arms and eventually yeah. they come to see me because their arms just aren't long enough, you know. Right. Um, I, I think if you're prescribed something and it's, uh, let's say, just uh, for, for reading, I think where it becomes a problem is if people tend to leave them perched on the end of their nose and get up from their workstation and go make themselves a cup of tea mm. or wander around the house, you know, doing a few things because then your eyes get progressively more used to it for other distances other than what it's prescribed for. Right. So if I prescribe an anti-fatigue lens, which is basically a type of lens to take the strain off the eyes, it may have a, uh, you know, a refractive uh, error sort of fix in it, mm. or it may just be what we call Plano. Um, I'll say to them, look, I'm prescribing this for you for classwork and close work. Mm. Don't want you wearing it any other time. You right. know, it's literally for, for you when you're taking notes down in class, so you don't need it for lunch or recess or sport because you want your eye muscles to do some of the work some right. of the time. So, but you know, I haven't, mind you, I haven't done a search in a while, but I haven't seen anything, any studies on PubMed that say, right. oh, don't wear your glasses. Your eyes right. will get worse. It's <laughs> right. more, you know, empirical evidence where people have said, oh, well, the more I wear it, the more I feel I need to rely on it. So. Yeah. And that might just be that their eyes are degrading on the, like, you know, it has nothing to do with the glasses. It's just kind of, that's the, what's going on. Could be. Yeah. 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 Or it could be dietary. Well, there's lots of factors, really, when you think about it, because like I was saying earlier, your eyes are part of your body. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not, you don't just look at it in isolation. I mean, sure. I'm, I'm sure diet would impact it. What you're actually using your eyes for. Cause I, um, I was saying to you earlier before the show started that uh, refractive errors were not recorded until the advent of literacy when, when you know, things started to be recorded and written down and books mm. came about, which I find fascinating. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I wonder if maybe um, the way humans evolved, they weren't doing that much really up-close work. Exactly. You know, it was kind of like that was something that came along with, like, reading. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you look at how much our society has changed in, say, even in the last 50 years, like with my kids' school, um, I mean, my kids were in year six, but I know I was quite heavily involved with the, the, the community and the PNC and the principals and staff. They were bringing in iPads for kindergarten kids to teach uh. them how to write. Can you believe that? Uh. There was an app that showed them that you start the A, you know, down the bottom and so on and so forth. So these kids were being exposed to technology at such a young age. Yeah. Wi-Fi hotspots was another thing they decided in their, you know, infinite wisdom to bring into the school. So, right. you know, there's multiple impacts to yeah. the eyes as there are to our body in general. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I often wonder about that and may, maybe we can talk about this actually, the <clears throat> nutrition for the eyes. Yeah. And I think that you're right that it is, you know, the eyes are a part of the body in total. Yeah. So <clears throat> if your eyes um, are failing in some way, it might indicate that there's some kind of maybe nutritional deficiency or something along those lines. What is there stuff that we can do specifically for the eyes? So aside from your, I think general antioxidants mm -hmm. are, are good anyway. Yeah. Um, but there are some uh, vitamins. It's more things like, um, uh, you know, your antioxidants like beta carotene and things like lutein and zeaxanthin, which mm. are pigments and, and um, components of brightly colored fruits and vegetables, mm -hmm. leafy greens, those sorts of things, are particularly uh, protective to, uh, to the macula. Right. Um, I actually... Uh, read some interesting research about saffron. Hmm. 
being protective to the macula and I'm kind of looking to, you know, keeping my eyes out to see if more research comes through. Right. I mean, I know it's very expensive and, and what have you, but if they can actually uh, make that in a tablet form, I mm -hmm. would assume that turmeric because, you know, again, we're going for the brightly colored, right. you know, the yellow pigments in, in those particular spices. Um, I know my health food shop sells something with the lutein and zeaxanthin and mm -hmm. also saffron. It's, it's starting uh -huh. to actually become available at our, well, our local health food shop. Right. Um, I know people uh, sort of talk about bilberry and I know that's also available at our health food shop. From what I gather, um, bilberry is more, um, and again, this is something that I remember coming across that, you know, uh, World War II, RAF, pilots were eating bilberry jam. I think it's a cousin of the, the blueberries mm -hmm. to help with their night vision. Mm. Um, when I looked it up just in preparation for the show, the evidence seems to be a bit conflicting as to whether it does or it doesn't, but uh, yeah. Um, Eyebright is another one that we were mm -hmm. talking about mm -hmm. and that seems to be, uh, that's a herb that's good to, um, for soothing, tired, inflamed, sore eyes mm. can be used, uh, for conjunctivitis. So mild kind of inflammatory, you know, conditions where the eyes are irritated more so than anything else. Mm -hmm. One thing that I came across when I was studying naturopathy was chamomile tea. Mm. So if you brew chamomile tea and obviously let it cool, do not put scalding chamomile tea in your <laughs> over your eyes. But yeah, even just the tea bags. Once you, if you, if you were going to drink the tea, if you kept the tea bags aside and put them in the fridge and then put them over your eyes, huh. very soothing for dry, tired, sore, itchy eyes. I right. thought that was really. I used to know a guy actually when I worked in a health food store, and um, there was one guy there who was kind of kooky, was always doing like pretty crazy things uh, for his health. <laughs> and um, he had, um, well, we used to sell them, actually. They were these little eye cups. Yeah. And, you know, you could so you could do an eye, eye wash. wash. Yeah. And he would do it with, like, cold chamomile tea. Yeah. But he also, one time, and this this is just insane, but he did it with, um, he took a cayenne tincture oh, and, like, added what? cayenne to the, to the <laughs> eye, and did an eye wash with cayenne. Why? Well, he was talking about how it was really good. I mean, cayenne is supposed to be really good for circulation. So he was saying that it was really good for eye circulation. And to his credit, he was an older guy, and he didn't need glasses. Actually, wait a second. Did he need it for... Maybe he needed it for reading. But um, but on a day-to-day -day basis and stuff like that, he didn't wear glasses. Yeah. Um, but I don't know that that necessarily is an endorsement of using cayenne in your eyes. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, so apparently else? the cayenne didn't bother his eye? <laughs> well, no. I mean, he said it was painful. Like he, you know, oh. kind of like, you know... That, that must have hurt. And he was like, yes. But I don't know. He's, I mean, he used to do crazy. He used to bathe in turmeric too. So like, yeah. Wow. wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, so going back to um, supplements, uh, what else did I have? Um, oh, yeah. We talked about blueberries and grapes. Even goji berries have antioxidant and anti-inflammatory mm. properties because of a, a compound called anthocyanin. Um, and then, you know, your fish oils, your DHA, um, you know, fatty acid um, can provide support to the cell membranes to boost eye health. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things is that I'm kind of bound by my association and in terms of, you know, what dietary recommendations, if I give any at all, it's mm. the traditional food pyramid, yeah. which is the, you know, low fat, especially not much saturated fat mm -hmm. at all and high carb. And it's interesting that despite there was a huge study done in the, the, the Blue Mountains, which is um, 
not far from Sydney. Like it, it and it followed these people. Um, over quite a period of time, and it conclusively showed that you know the lutein and zeaxanthin was really pr- protective of the eyes. And mm. it's funny because prior to that study being done, ophthalmology just completely disregarded diet. Mm. You know, if you talked about diet, they just go. Pff. It doesn't affect the eyes at all. And then when that study came out, all of a sudden they were like, oh, well, there's not much we can do for dry macula. So take these tablets or, Mm. you know, eat your spinach. So I I found that really interesting. Um, And I lost my train of thought. (laughs) What was I talking about? (laughs) You're talking about fats, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting that despite you know, the advice, and it's been like that now for the last sort of 10 years about eating your leafy greens and what have you, we're still seeing a a spiraling increase in incidence of macula. Mm. And I personally feel that it's because of this food pyramid and not enough fats in the diet. Yeah. Well, it affects so much. And I, I, it just, it wouldn't surprise me at all. I mean, you need those, um, those uh, omega-3s for keeping membranes flexible, which I'm assuming is, you know, important to eye structure. Yeah, sorry, I was just reading some questions on the on the chat room. Yeah. Trying to multitask. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there was another one actually that, uh, like speaking of kind of uh, nutrients for eye structure, um, that it's hyaluronic acid. Do you know much about that one? No, you asked mm. me about that today. Mm. Um, the only time I've come across hyaluronic acid has been in dry eye formulations right because dry eyes is something that does tend to affect people as they get older mm-hmm. um sometimes with women they can suffer from dry eyes and dry mouth yeah. and it sometimes can be so bad um it's called it's a syndrome called yeah. Sjogren's syndrome and right. it's an, then can lead to other autoimmune problems mm-hmm. so the dry eye industry is is big and the only time i've seen mention of hyaluronic acid is with formulations so that they actually stay on the eye um, uh, and, and, you know, give some longer lasting relief. Right. Um, well, the one of the reasons that it kind of um, interested me is because I know that that's something that you can get from um, animal products like meats and things like that. And one really good source of it is actually bone broth. And yeah. it would just, it's kind of like bone broth is, is so good on like kind of a systemic so level levels. for yeah. so many different things that it wouldn't surprise me at all if it was also something that was very good for eyes. It would make sense. Yeah. I mean, it keeps coming back to the, the eyes are not separate from the body. So right. what's good for the body systemically and in general, one would think would be beneficial to the eyes as well. Yeah. Maybe you could even try a bone broth eye wash. <laughs> That, Certainly not, not Kayeem. <laughs> I was not suggesting that, listeners. Please don't do that. Um, so maybe we can start talking about some of the things that actually can go wrong with the eyes, like some yeah. of, like eye diseases and things like that. Sure. So uh, cataracts is probably the most common one. Mm-hmm. And whenever I'm, I'm, you know, talking to my patients about cataracts, I'll say to them, "Look, I'm starting to see some very early signs of it. Do you know what a cataract is?" Nine times out of 10, they'll tell me, oh, isn't it a bit of skin that grows and covers your eye? And that is a very, very common misconception. Mm. It is not actually a bit of skin that grows over the eye. It's the lens, the human lens inside the eye kind of sits about a third of the way um, anteriorly into into mm-hmm. the eye. Um, and initially it's transparent, just like when you crack an egg open, it's transparent. Mm-hmm. Once you cook that egg, it changes color, it becomes progressively more op- opaque, it becomes a thick milky white. Mm-hmm. That's what a cataract in its end stage looks like. That human lens kind of cooks over a period of time. Mm. And it's actually interesting because medically it's one of the 
few conditions I know of where you don't have to rush out at the first signs of it. Ophthalmologists will not operate on a cataract in its early stages. Hmm. And I kind of like that runny egg um, or the egg analogy because it's kind of like when you try to get a runny egg out of a pan, mm -hmm. it's a messy job. It's the same thing with the human lens. They actually wait for it to literally cook because then they get it all out in one go. They actually so, take it out. They actually take it out. Hmm. So like the, the whole lens or just the cataract? Well, it's actually the, the lens sits inside a capsule. So they leave the capsule. They kind of um, use a, a, a machine that kind of emulsifies it and then they kind of suck it out for want of a better oh word. God. And then they yeah. insert a, a, a clear plastic lens in its place, an intraocular lens. And that sits inside the capsule. Hmm. So one one of the side effects, as it were, from that kind of surgery is that glare becomes a problem because obviously a plastic lens doesn't quite function right. the same way as a human lens. Um, and then you've, you've got, again, you know, that exposure to blue light. I did see some research about um, some of the pharmaceutical companies trying to put a blue filter in some of the newer intraocular oh. lenses that, that they put in, but... I think that's that's a work in progress. Right. Mm. And it might if you actually do need blue light for some things, maybe it wouldn't be the best. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. No. Now, um, what like do we they know what causes cataracts? The general literature suggests UV A and B exposure. Oh. Hmm. That seems to be the thing. Um, look, I again think it's it's a combination of things. I think it's mm. what you use your eyes for. I think if you're fair, um, in your colouring, you've got, you know, light-coloured irises and you're somewhere in Australia in the outback and it's 50-degree heat yeah. and you don't necessarily have the pigmentation in your skin or your iris to deal with it. Right. Genetically, I think you're in, you know, um, not in a climate that's quite amenable to your, your right. predisposition. Um, some of the things that when I was doing naturopathy, one of the things that I remember was orthomolecular nutrition, in particular, high doses of vitamin C mm -hmm. can slow down the progression of, of cataracts. And, yeah. you know, even though there's, there's a treatment for it down the track, any surgery has risks. So you really want to prolong that for as long as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. And vitamin C is a, a good thing to experiment with because it's water soluble. There's yeah. no toxicity Right. Your body will use as much as it needs and you shed the rest. So. And it would make sense too. I mean, it's an antioxidant. So if exactly. it is kind of oxidative damage that's kind of causing the cataract, then it would make sense that an antioxidant like vitamin C would work. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Um, the other one that's kind of, you know, in um, talked about a fair bit now, didn't used to be, is macular degeneration, which we've mentioned before. Mm -hmm. um, so... The macula is a specific part of the retina. The retina is the kind of like the inside lining of the back of the eyeball. Mm. And it's got all your, your nerves, you know, your nerves kind of um, inhabit the, the back of the eyeball and it all comes together as, as an optic cable, literally, which is your optic nerve, which then mm. goes up to the brain, tells the brain what it is that you're seeing mm. out there in the world. Um, and the macula has a very high concentration of... Um, Cones. So cones are really good for, you know, uh, very specific, very high resolution acuity. Out towards the periphery, you have more rods. Mm. Um, and there are about, in the retina itself, there's about nine different layers of, of nerve cells. Mm. If you kind of think of it as a, uh, you know, BLT or a sandwich with different layers and macular degeneration, what happens is that the layers, instead of staying in their nice, neat little um, 
uh, you know, array, they, they get into disarray. They're all kind of mushed up together and what have mm. you. And you start to see degener degenerative changes. You can see um, early signs of it would probably be that you see some pigment clumping or you might see drusen, which is like a fatty lipid kind of deposit. Mm. And that's the dry form. And most people usually start with the dry form. Um, you can get the wet form, which just basically means there's a bleed at the back of the eye, yeah. which they then treat with injections. Mm. So, okay. and the injections are basically designed to um, stem the, the, the flow of bleeding because the problem with bleeding is that it leads to scarring, which leads to new blood vessels, which leads to more bleeding, and it's a bit of a nightmare. Right. So, so it's the, there's the dry and the wet form of the macular degeneration. And so ju just to clarify, uh, the 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 cones are for kind of detailed seeing yeah. and the rods are more for night vision for night vision yeah. and then the rods are more for is it movement or yeah and more in the periphery as well more in the periphery and that's why at nighttime when you try and stare at a star directly with you know using your macula you don't see it as well if you look right. slightly off to the side using your rods you you'll see it better you'll then. see it better hmm. interesting okay yeah um yeah, so what about the glaucoma? Yeah, I was coming to that. So glaucoma <laughs> is it's it's one of those things it's I was talking to Doug earlier today. It's one of those things that I don't think it's very well understood the mechanism by which damage occurs to the optic nerve and the, you know, ensuing optic neuropathy as it's called. Um traditionally it's been known as, you know, raised intraocular pressure that damages the nerves at the back of the eyes. So people say to me, oh, is that related to, you know, is it blood blood pressure or, or something like that? What it is, is there's an intraocular fluid that, that gets pumped into the eyeball in, in through the front, nourishes various structures, and then it, it kind of drains out. Mm. Sometimes it could be that you're producing it faster than it can get out. So that causes a buildup of pressure, which literally squeezes the life out of the nerves at the back of the eye mm. and causes the neuropathy. Sometimes it can be that the channels through which the fluid needs to drain out, either the structure is physically so narrow that it ain't getting out, you know, fast enough, or there's blockages. And once again, it's, you know, impeding the, the outflow. Um, having said that though, even though, and the most, probably the most common form would be primary open angle glaucoma, which means that the, the angle out through which the, the, you know, intraocular fluid flows out is, is open. Um, there are things like um, normal tension glaucoma where the pressures are normal, but we still tend to see glaucomatous damage at the back of the eye. Hmm. And then there's low tension glaucoma where, you know, pressures are low and we're still seeing damage at the back of the eye. So hmm. there are other mechanisms at play that I don't think are fully understood. Hmm. Whether it's a balance of the capillary perfusion um, to the, you know, axonal sort of fluid, whether it's, you know, um, you know, mitochondrial issues with, you know, uh, oxidative damage, hmm. you know, I, I, I don't think anyone really knows. There's, right. if you look at the literature, um, there seems to be a range of different theories, but nothing that's, you know, concrete, like right. proof, this is what causes this. Hmm. Um, and... I kind of, when I was uh, looking up some alternative things, because I know uh, there was a thread about glaucoma on our, our forum, mm. um, 
Other than antioxidants, and I think we were looking at an article today which um, mentioned a herb called golden root. Yeah. Um, what was that? Also known as ba bacal skullcap. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Which seemed to show some promise in, in lowering pressure. Um, I know that there's been things about um, medicinal marijuana that can lower pressure. Yeah. Um, and that's used, you know, uh, I don't know if it's used in Australia because they, they're funny about that sort of stuff. I think it might be more in the States, but mm. um, glaucoma is just not very well understood. From the landmark glaucoma trial, so this is, again, evidence-based literature, the one thing they found that slows down um, the optic neuropathy, which if you leave it, leave it go, people tend to lose the nerves responsible for their peripheral vision. Mm. Eventually, they end up with just tunnel vision. And if still nothing's done to, you know, any intervention is instituted, they end up going completely blind. So it's mm. kind of the opposite of macula. In macular degeneration, you, you tend to have a sort of round black spot right where you want to look at, but you've still got your peripheral vision. Oh. Um, so, it, you know, macula won't send you blind, put it that way. It'll just kind of destroy your, your central vision. But with glaucoma, it's the opposite. And with the landmark um, trials, the one thing they found that seems to help is lowering the pressure. Right. So it's it's the it's the the one thing that they found um, stops the progression of the optic neuropathy and, and the damage. That's even if it's uh, normal pressure or low pressure glaucoma. Yep. yep. Even lowering the pressure further will yep. will help. Yep. Interesting. Very. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's weird. I wonder. I wonder why that is. I mean, uh, I don't know. <laughs> We'd need to have a glaucoma specialist or an ophthalmologist yeah. here to have a, a really good chat about that because, um, you know, a few years ago, with optometry now, when I did it at uni, it was four years. It was a degree over four years. Um, now in in Sydney, anyway, um, at the University of New South Wales, it's five years, and the optometrists are graduating, being able to prescribe some pharma pharmacological agents. Mm. When I graduated, I didn't have the therapeutics um, qualifications. So a few years ago, I decided to go back to uni and do my postgrad certificate in in graduate therapeutics. And um, there were a lot of case studies because glaucoma co-management is one of those things. Now, mm. the laws won't let us diagnose glaucoma ourselves. Australia's funny. The AMA, which is the Australian Medical Association, and RANSCO, which is the Royal College of, you know, ophthalmologists, they're very territorial. Mm. The only time I found them not to be so territorial is if you're in the middle of nowhere, like you're in the outback. Um, so a few years ago, I did some relief work in um uh, the northwestern uh, part of Australia in a place called Broome. And over there, your nearest, aside from us, we were the only optometrists, um, eight hours, either either direction, eight hours drive. And there's a visiting ophthalmologist that comes once every three months. And a, a, a general practitioner's clinic had just closed. So there was only one um, doctor's clinic there. And so they were actually sending people my way. Normally, you know, GPs are very possessive of their patients and right. what have you, but they were sending people my way with foreign bodies and, you know, minor abrasions that I had to treat. So that seems to be the only reason where they tend to, you know, be relaxed about it. But that's just, I digress. Mm. I'm chucking a Jordan Peterson here. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, but now, so when I was um, back doing postgrad um, studies, part of it was glaucoma management. And, you know, I had to write a case report on, and I chose mine on primary open angle glaucoma. 
I still, looking through all the literature, cannot for the life of me understand what the mechanism is behind optic neuropathy. Wow. Don't know it. Hmm. Mm. It's a mystery, I guess. It is, to me anyway. And how do they lower the pressure? So they either work on outflow, so mm. they either work by um, the production of the intraocular pressure and slowing that down, mm. or they work on the outflow by helping them, uh, you know, uh, drain out faster. Ah, okay. Yeah. And then there's other things that they've come out with. So there's um, a type of laser that, that the ophthalmologist can use. Um, it's an argon laser where they kind of create little tiny burns around the ciliary body Jeez. to basically open up the channels and, and get rid of any, any obstructions. Seems to work for about a year or two and then the pressures start to escape and people then need to be put on treatments again. And then for really recalcitrant um, glaucoma cases, there's things like, you know, microfiltration where they basically install something um, surgically to, to, you know, keep the fluid um, draining faster wow. and, dra and keeping the pressures down. But Jeez. That's well and so truly is, beyond my realm of expertise. <laughs> is marijuana as effective as the stoners would like you to think for glaucoma? Or is it just I, used to make people feel better? Yeah, I, it's one thing I haven't really looked into. I'm, I'm, no. I don't, can't really answer that because I don't know. <laughs> well, you were speaking well, about lasers. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Go ahead. Go speaking ahead, of too. lasers. Uh, LASIK eye surgery yeah. was really popular now. And I remember when it first came out, I've never worn glasses. I don't think I've ever even been to an optometrist. But I was always scared, like, if I did wear glasses, whether I would have this uh, LASIK eye surgery. So can you go into a bit of that and what the risks are and what the benefits might be? Yeah. So LASIK eye surgery has come a long way. Um you know, way back when it was kind of experimental, I was really hesitant to refer anybody. But now um, in my practice, I've actually referred quite a few people um, to the closest um, laser refractive surgery clinic, which is two hours away from me, but anyway, um, with really, really good success. Um, I've not had, I think there was one person I had that had an epithelial defect where the cornea just did not want to heal and you know we had to put what they call a bandage contact lens but basically for for scripts that are moderate to high say above um, upwards of plus or minus three you know plus or minus four I really don't know that natural vision improvements are going to give you much relief you know mm. even if you did that religiously I mean you know, a minus four, even if you got that down to a minus three, you're still talking probably needing yeah. glasses to be safe on the road, for example, and to keep, right. you know, well, whatever your roads and traffic authority equivalent would be. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, so laser, basically what it does is it it kind of molds the, the cornea and reshapes the cornea. The cornea is the very sort of um, front uh, uh, part of the eye. And it's actually responsible for most of your focusing. And with, say, myopia or short-sightedness, it tends to be um, quite 
pointy, you know, it, it creates a sort of a longer axial length. And so what they've thought that they can do is make a, a little, what they call an ablation and uh, create a bit of a flap. So they get the, the top part of the cornea uh, off to the side and use laser basically to shave down the cornea and remold it. And then they sit the flap back on. So it doesn't require any stitches or anything like that. Hmm. Um, dryness probably seems to be the biggest issue my patients right. report. Um, maybe in the first three months or so, um, some, you know, a bit of glare and distortion and, and halos at nighttime, but truly within about six months, they're, they're all good. Well, it sounds so. like it's actually come a long way because I, <clears throat> I knew people who kind of, when it was new, you know, people who had, you know, hated their glasses, um, that they had to depend on glasses and, and ran for the laser eye surgery, like as soon as it kind of came out. Yeah. And <clears throat> some of those people like... One of them in particular who I'm thinking of kind of had red eyes like like I, chronically after that. Yeah. And I mean, there were other people, you know, there were, there, you can read some horror stories on the internet, I'm sure. But it seems like now it's kind of come a long way where it's like it, things are better. It definitely has. But having said that, I would, put, if you're thinking of doing it, research and pick your practitioner very well. Right. So I'm very careful about who I refer my patients to. Right. Um, because that chain of care is important to me. So I won't send them to, you know, someone that I'm, I'm not entirely sure that, you right. know, they get the results that I'd, I'd want for my patients. But then again, you'll find people who a, either self-diagnose or look for it on the cheap because there are, I mean, um, with the clinic that I send um, my patients to, to have both eyes um, done uh, treated, you're probably looking at about 5,500 Australian dollars. Wow. So it's not cheap. Right. Um, there are people in, say, Melbourne and some in Sydney who will probably do it for half that mm. and they will just take themselves off to that um, particular person. But, you know, the, the thing I like about these guys that I refer to is you send them along, um, you know, a, a patient and if they can't deliver a, a good visual prognosis, they'll tell you up front, look, mm. the chances are, or we can't do LASIK, we need to do PRK, which is a slightly different technique, mm. or you know, look, um, we can see that your script has been changing. You're better off to wait because you're not, you're going to pay $5,000. You're not going to get the mileage out of it. Right. Generally, um, the advice that I've been given from them as a referring practitioner is it's really good to wait for your script to be stable for at least 12 months before mm. you, you know, think about getting refractive surgery. Right. Because if your script is still in the process of changing, you might find that you get maybe one or two years and then you're slowly, progressively becoming short-sighted again for whatever reason. So, right. right. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I is do LASIK know... something that can be done more than once? With... Depends on the no thickness effect? of the cornea because mm. you've only got, I mean, we're talking nanometers. You've only got, um, you know, so much room to move before you sort of run out of something to, to work with. So, right, right, right. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not a LASIK expert, but that's, that's what I've heard. There are some times where people might be, you know, um, changed from say a minus five, but there's still a residual a minus one or a minus 075. And they're not entirely happy with that because mm. at nighttime they tend to notice it more and they want to be completely glasses free. So within six months, these guys will go, go back in and do it. But I don't know that it's a sort of procedure that you would repetitive, repetitively go and have done. Right. And you you were saying before that people usually get about eight to ten years out of it if it's a good one. Yeah. 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 
So what do they do at the end of that eight to ten years? Do they get it well, again, it depends, or do they start wearing glasses it, again? Well, it depends how old they are. Because mm. if uh, when they had it done, because the other problem is is that you know if they get get it done in their mid twenties or thirties or whatever, um, if they get towards their their um, early forties, they probably are starting to get presbyopic, which means that they need reading glasses. Right. So then, um, you know, they pr probably either need to go back to glasses or contact lenses or um, some of the newer techniques with laser are trying to correct people for presbyopia, where they might correct the, um, leave the dominant eye for um, long distance vision mm -hmm. and the non-dominant eye, they might put like a little insert or something to give them some clarity for close up. Really? I haven't seen too much research into that and I don't know how long lasting that is. So, right. um, but yeah, in terms of, you know, uh, what they can do. The other thing is, is, in your sort of 40s, 50s or 60s, you could always, um, and if that's how old you are when you're thinking about laser correction, another alternative or another option would be to um, see your ophthalmologist and have the cataract surgery brought forward. So if you don't theoretically have cataracts, it's actually called a clear lens exchange, but it's the same procedure. Mm. So what they do is they remove your human lens, they put in a, a clear plastic lens, but they calibrate the optics of that lens so much so that you don't need glasses or, you know, they can do the monocular vision thing where your dominant eye is set for distance and your non-dominant eye is set for reading. So you can kind of be glasses free because mm. that's what everyone wants these days. So That sounds weird though, to have one eye that's can focus on one area and one eye that focuses on You know, it's, it's not for everyone. I have mm. got a few contact lens patients who are, um, I fit with monocular vision. Mm. It's not for everyone. And if you were going to experiment with that surgically, quite often what they'll do is actually put contact lenses in your eyes and see how you fare. And right. if your brain just cannot cope with the disparity between, you know, one eye for distance, one eye for reading, then they know not to go ahead with that kind of surgery for right. you. Right, right. So... It, it all seems kind of strange too. I, I had no idea that they can actually just replace human lenses with plastic. Essentially, yeah, that's it's kind, kind of, of weird. Yeah, it's kind of weird. It is, yeah. and you know, yeah. when you you look enough into people's eyes, you can kind of tell when because of really? the reflection. If you look into their pupil, you actually see the reflection of the intraocular lens. It's yeah, yeah, that's oh, weird. If you know what you're looking for, <laughs> <laughs> that is kind of bizarre. Mm. Um, I don't know if using an animal lens would be even more bizarre, or if yeah. that's even possible. Would it be like rejected? Monkey lens, like a pig lens. <laughs> a pig lens, yeah. Can't say I've seen any literature about it, but it just sounds weird to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Plastic is less weird. Yeah. So, you know, I do want to ask you about kind of um, diagnosing things with the eye. Um, but there was a couple of comments and stuff in the chat that I just wanted to bring up. Sure. So um, one person in the chat said that uh, she had uh, trouble with dry burning eyes and actually used MCT oil by putting that in the eye for a couple of days and it really lub lubricated things and actually made them a lot better. Yeah. You ever heard of that? No. Um, like certainly not in evidence-based stuff. Right. Um, with dry eyes is actually a really big problem. And in my practice, it's mainly an older demographic. So average age of my patients would be about 73. Mm. Um, and drops are kind of okay. But the problem with, with drops, regardless of the formulation, is that they're so watery that by the time, you know, you've managed to 
um, get some of it in your eye. Half of it's running down your face. Right. Um, I actually like a, a gel, um, which is kind of halfway between an eye drop and an ointment. Ointments are usually, you know, you only apply that at night because it's so gooey, you can't see mm -hmm. anything out of it. But the, the gel, it's easy to apply. You can stand up in front of the mirror and, um, you know, apply to the inside of your lower lid and it stays on there like a protective film. But MCT oil, is that sort of like coconut oil? Yeah, it's like one one of the fats that's found in coconut oil. Like one of, or a, cu a couple of the, the medium chain fats. I'd be curious, would it blur the vision though? Because I mean, sometimes I use coconut oil as a moisturizer and mm. if I get that in my eye, I'm like, oh my God, I yeah. can't see. It might yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, I've actually, I experimented for a while because I was having a similar problem with dry eyes. I used, uh, I had read that castor oil in the eyes was actually pretty good. And did you put cayenne super... in it? No. <laughs> no, I did not. No. No cayenne is going about. <laughs> I have cut peppers before and accidentally rubbed my eye though and that was pretty painful. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, the, the, it was weird, the, it, because it, it was just like you're describing, like you couldn't do it and then just kind of go out. Yeah. Um, because you did have kind of blurry a vision. A little bit, yeah. Um, for a while. And I don't know whether or not it helped, but um, yeah, maybe it did. But anyway, yeah, it was a while ago, so I can't really remember. There's actually new things coming out now for dry eyes, and I haven't had the time off late to, to look into the research, but um, intense pulsed light, so IPL. Oh, that one of the questions about uh, on the chat was actually about that yeah, also. Yeah, so I know with... Um, with some optometrists, they're actually getting IPL units mm. and they're using it to basically stimulate the meibomian gland, which is the sebaceous or oil producing glands in your eyelids mm. um, to get the flow happening. Um, and it seems to be working quite well because it's springing up in, in more and more practices. So, because mm. it really is a problem. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's usually that you start out with, with drops or gels or ointments. Um, you can try... Um, some fairly heavy-duty um, anti-inflammatory kind of um, eye drops like cyclosporin or restasis. You know, we start, and then I was um, talking with someone else earlier about um, autologous serum. So that's where they draw blood, mm. your own blood, and then they take out the white cell component and centrifuge that and create a serum from that, which seems to be... Huh quite beneficial now whether it's the stem i don't really know much about that because ophthalmology mainly deals with that sort of thing right but those are sort of the the things in the line of treatment but off late i've been seeing a lot more about ipl for dry eyes so interesting very and the the that method where they actually take the white blood cells they, they you then use that as drops kind of thing yeah they, oh. they make it into a serum and they use that as eye drops wow mm. very interesting um Oh, the person responded in the chat and said that it was briefly blurry after yeah. using the MCT oil. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So maybe we'll talk, because I know you were telling me something before about how it's actually possible to to diagnose things by looking into the eye, like looking at the blood vessels. Ah, uh, you mean systemic conditions? Yeah. 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 So looking through... The pupil through to the back of the eye is one of the only ways that you can observe blood vessels in a human being without cutting them open. Oh. And I find that absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Mind you, I wouldn't wait to come to the optometrist to see if you've got diabetes, especially if you've been trashing yourself and you know right. there's something majorly wrong, because for it to show up in the back of the eyes, you need to have been unwell for quite some time. But we can see systemic things like um, 
you know, diabetes, either early, you know, there are certain signs where you might see blood that's leaked out of the blood vessels because in the back of the eye, aside from the nerves, you need something to nourish the nerves. So you have capillaries and arteries and, mm -hmm. and what have you. And, you know, diabetes tends to affect the, the blood vessels, um, the lining. Um, they tend to get more permeable to the wrong things. So you'll find blood leaking out, proteins leaking out. Mm. Um, you, you can see, you know, malignant hypertension um, at the back of the eye where you'll see things like cotton wool spots is the name for it, where the nerves are actually inflamed. So there are definitely signs that you can see at the back of the eye that alert us to oh, well, there's something going on and then we refer you back to your GP or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, to get things looked into. Right. I um, I know of a, a colleague of mine who actually had someone come in just off the cuff for a, an eye test. Um, you know, I can't remember what the presenting complaint was. Um, you know, went through the whole eye test. Everything kind of looked normal at this stage. I think they might have maybe had a mild prescription for, for glasses. And then they had a look at the back of the eye using one of our digital machines where you can basically see the optic nerve and the whole of the, the retina and diagnosed a thing called Roth, R-O-T-H, Roth spots, which is a kind of a hemorrhage with a, a white spot in the middle. And it's usually characteristic, it used to be, um, you know, characteristic of, you know, a bacterial endocarditis, mm. but it can also be significant, um, a significant sign for leukemia huh. and said, oh, we better get you seen to. And sure enough, that's how the leukemia was picked up. So, you wow. know, people that say to me, oh, no, I'm, my eyes are fine. I'm yeah, blah, blah, blah. I think, well, you never know what could be happening that yeah. you have no symptoms or are, are unaware about. So. And are the GPs open to it? Like is if you refer somebody back to their doctor or something and they say they found something in an eye exam, are they open? Yeah, for, for the most part they are. I think they get territorial about things like conjunctivitis because they want to treat it. And then if you start taking over, because now we can prescribe, you know, pharmacological mm. agents for, you know, um, anti-inflammatories and antibiotics and stuff like that. They get a bit tetchy about that. But if you send somebody there and send the, you know, diagnostic information and your findings, your clinical details, you know, the, the, the you know, images that you've taken, that they, they, and I think it's too, um, the kind of relationships you foster wherever you are sure. with your practice, you know, it's all about networking. Mm -hmm. You Absolutely. know, there's always going to be, and even, I mean, I've got um, two ophthalmologist um, practices and you know, where I am in my small town and they're both absolutely brilliant ophthalmologists and I've got a good relationship with them. So I wouldn't deem to start treating things, um, you know, that is really their territory. Right. So I'll send, you know, things off to them and then, you know, they'll do the same if it's things like, you know, a, a refraction, which means an eye test for glasses that needs to be done, they'll send them back to me. Right. It's only if you're out in the middle of you know, the outback or nowhere where you start to take those things on. So there's a kind of professional respect that you sure. kind of. Yeah. yeah. I guess I was just wondering, like if you spotted something in the eye and sent them to their doctor, if the doctor would be like, well, what does an optometrist know about this? Like, you know, there what? is a bit of that and, that goes on. Okay. And you know, there've been times where I've looked at, you know, someone's eyes and I've thought, oh my God, look at that optic nerve. There's definitely, you know, glaucoma going on here because, you know, it, it, there's a thing known as um, cupping where it mm -hmm. looks as if there's pressure literally pushing down on the optic nerve head. And I'll refer to the ophthalmologist and they'll go, oh, no, 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 it's within normal findings. Uh -huh. And then, you know, I'm thinking, well, I'm not really happy with that. And then I'll send them over to, you know, somewhere else for a second opinion. And those guys will, you know, institute treatment. So with certain uh -huh. things, there's a gray area. And, um, you know, you could see, send someone to three different ophthalmologists and come out with th three different 
not diagnosis, but forms of treatment. Some might sure. want to monitor, you know, come back in in six months. Some might go, no, 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 let's treat that now. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of diagnosis, one thing that I find very interesting, and I studied it a little bit, um, and you uh, told me that you had actually studied it some as well, um, the idea of iridology or yeah. iridology. Iridology. You well, pronounce it iridology. Yeah. Okay. Iridology. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I'm not a practicing iridologist, but it's it was always fascinating to me um, the concept of iridology, which is basically where you, it's almost like a reflexology map of the body superimposed on top of the iris. Hmm. And then, you know, based on, you know, the appearance of the iris, um, you know, any freckles or um, lacunae, as they call, which are little gaps in, in the fibers of the iris and other appearances, you can pretty much make a pretty on-point diagnosis about what the person's, you know, health is at that point in time. Mm. And I studied it for a, a year, but I didn't actually, you know, do enough clinic hours to, to qualify. And um, I think, you know, my association would have a bit of an issue. So I kind of just have it running as a background program, you know. So if I see someone with what we call cramp rings or stress rings, you can tell that they're, you know, quite an anxious, stressed out person. Mm. And if I know that they're doing, you know, they've got a lot of pressure, they're doing a lot of, you know, computer work, I might prescribe anti-fatigue mm -hmm. um, lenses. I might tell them to take regular breaks. I might prescribe some eye exercises. So it kind of, it just helps me... Um, put together recommendations in my prescription. It helps me kind of refine that. Right. Um, but there's, you know, from, again, it's been a while since I hit my iridology books, but there's so much that you can tell. So one of the first things that I was quite impressed about was the fact that if the iris fibers are, are all fairly straight and very tightly packed together, it meant the person had a fairly good constitution. Mm. You know, they were, you know, of pretty good solid, genetic disposition like mm. they could they'd be the ones that could eat anything and do anything to themselves and right. never get sick you know i'm sure we all know people like that yep. and then um on the flip side people that had very loosely packed iris fibers um you know these were likely to really these people were really needed to look after themselves because mm. you know they they wouldn't be able to get away with it as much so right. You can tell someone's constitution and predisposition. You can tell if they're very anxious people and you can see the nerve rings. You can tell if someone's fairly stressed out because it tends to cause like a white film or a white overlay. Um, you can tell if they've got uh, issues with cholesterol and this is something that overlaps with optometry because mm. we call it an arcus. You actually see a ring of deposit. You can tell if their skin... Um, as the largest organ isn't detoxing things properly or they're putting creams and lotions and things that they really shouldn't because you actually see like a toxic toxic ring around the sort of the periphery of the iris. Hmm. Um, you can tell the gut integrity um, by looking at the pupil. You can tell if they've got, you know, um, digestive issues, liver issues, kidney issues. Hmm. It's, you know, and again, there's, there's you know, practitioners that have been doing it for a long while and they're the ones that you want to go and see because they've, yeah. you know, um, honed their art, so to speak. Yeah. It's but, pretty fascinating though. It sounds, it sounds very similar to like in Chinese medicine where they talk about how, you know, all the organ systems of the body get mapped onto different parts. Mm -hmm. So like you mentioned reflexology, the idea that the bottom of the foot is actually a map of the entire body where different organ systems exactly. are related to particular parts. And in the eye, it sounds like, because I think with the, with the foot, you're not necessarily seeing reflected back 
it's just a way of kind of um accessing those things through like foot massage or something like yeah. that but with the eye it's almost sounds like it's uh it's more like a reflection of what's actually going on absolutely. Um, in the body yeah well that's absolutely. fascinating mm. yeah and it's really good if you can see someone that can take pictures of your eyes you know as right. your because iridology is mainly a diagnostic process so you know if you go and see a naturopath they'll probably use iridology they might do hair and nail analysis and you know some mm -hmm. other things just to get a a snapshot of what you know um your health is at any given point in time and then if they institute say dietary changes or supplements or exercise or you know any of those things, you're bound to see some changes. And you and I were having a chat about this earlier because when I went through, and I don't know whether this is a more traditionalist approach to iridology, but I was taught that there were only two true iris colors, brown and blue. Mm. And that any other overlay, so to get green, you need a yellow overlay, which from memory was issues with um, liver and gallbladder. Mm. Um you know, white was, you know, too much acidity in the system. So that's how mm. you got gray. Say brown eyes, if you have hazel eyes, again, you've got that yellow overlay to give right. you that, that hazel look. But, and I had a textbook, I'm trying to remember who the author of that textbook was. Um, and he had a whole heap of before and after photos of that, that person's iris. It was quite amazing. Mm. But you were saying when you did your course, they, they didn't really talk about that. Well, it was a long time ago, so I don't, totally remember they might have actually said something like that I, th I think that people would be kind of resistant to that idea though because people you know green eyes tend to be kind of like valued like people yeah. want to have green eyes and i don't think anybody would be a big fan that they have <laughs> green eyes because they have liver and gallbladder problems yeah 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 <laughs> i mean how true it is i, I don't know it's been yeah. a long time since i hit my iridology textbook so <laughs> right yeah yeah but you mentioned um traditional Chinese medicine mm -hmm. just before. And, you know, I don't know, when I studied naturopathy, I think one of the things that turned me off studying it further was it was fairly eclectic in the way they taught the course. So mm -hmm. you had iridology as your primary diagnostic tool, and then they taught you a little bit about herbs. But by then, Big Farmer had gotten their tentacles into herbs. So mm -hmm. everything had to be a standardized extract of right. X amount and evidence-based literature and the whole wildcrafting and more the more intuitive art of prescribing herbs was kind of gone. Right. Um, homeopathy was very interesting. If I was to go back, I'd probably just concentrate on homeopathy yeah, and refine that. I agree. Because the, the concept of something uh, being more potent the more dilute it is, mm. is fascinating. So mm. I tend to use, I've got a little dispensary at home because with the information that I got for that, that, that year of studying naturopathy, I basically used it on my, myself and my family. Mm -hmm. So, and, you know, close friends and, and what have you. Um, but vibrational medicine like um, flower essences, homeopathy is just absolutely fascinating. Mm -hmm. But if I was to, aside from homeopathy, I think traditional Chinese medicine is something that I find extremely fascinating mm -hmm. because anything to do with the Taoist philosophy, it's like we were talking earlier, it's like a unifying field theory where they talk about the, the cosmic chi or energy that comes in um, from the cosmos, splits off into your um, yin and yang. From that, you've got the five elements, you know, your fire, earth, wood, water, metal. And the combination of how those elements react with each other or clash against each other is what they use for their herbs, prescribing herbs, prescribing, um, you know, say acupuncture, um, meridians, getting the yin and the yang of, of that within the five elements into balance, 
It's what they eat. They eat seasonally as well. So in mm -hmm. springtime, they'll eat more salads because salads and sprouts and things like that mm -hmm. relate to spring and the first shoots and so to speak um you know in summer it's more yin foods like fruit in winter it's like you know casseroles and things that are you know, cooked for a long period of time to mm -hmm. get because winter that the environment is so yin you want to put in more yang into the system right um and incidentally the eyes are the sense organ for the liver meridian so mm -hmm. and the liver relates to anger wow. so i mean this is just an aside that i collected along the way you know um, maybe there are, if for people that have persistent eye issues, mm -hmm. the liver meridian might be something to look at. Interesting. But yeah, traditional Chinese medicine is very, very interesting. And I learned more about that when I studied feng shui, because it's the same principle of those five elements that's used to cast charts, mm. um, as well as to harmonize, you know, a space. Right. And I always thought feng shui was just, you know, moving a sofa here and moving a bed there and putting a mirror over there. But that's just the feng shui of space. There's also the feng shui of time, which is a whole other thing and maybe a whole other show. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, Tiff, did you have any other questions at all? No, I think Rashma pretty much addressed everything I wanted to ask. Yeah. Well, that was very fascinating. Yeah. I think um, maybe it makes we'll... me want to go get my eyes checked by Rushma. <laughs> Come and see me. I'm only 30 hours flying away. Big of a deal. Well, maybe what we'll do is go to the uh, pet health segment and then we can come back and wrap up. So here is Zoya with the pet health segment where she's going to be talking about night vision. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Patel segment of the Health and Wellness Show. This week's topic is How do animals see in the dark? To human eyes, the world at night is a formless canvas of grey. Many nocturnal animals, on the other hand, experience a rich and varied world, bursting with details, shapes and colors. What is it then that separates moths from men? Listen to the following recording to uncover the science behind night, night vision. Have a great weekend and goodbye. To human eyes, the world at night is a formless canvas of gray. Many nocturnal animals, on the other hand, experience a rich and varied world, bursting with details, shapes, and colors. What is it, then, that separates moths from men? Moths and many other nocturnal animals see at night because their eyes are adapted to compensate for the lack of light. All eyes, whether nocturnal or not, depend on photoreceptors in the retina to detect light particles known as photons. Photoreceptors then report information about these photons to other cells in the retina and brain. The brain sifts through that information and uses it to build up an image of the environment the eye perceives. The brighter the light is, the more photons hit the eye. On a sunny day, upwards of 100 million times more photons are available to the eye than on a cloudy, moonless night. Photons aren't just less numerous in darkness, but they also hit the eye in a less reliable way. This means the information that photoreceptors collect will vary over time, as will the quality of the image. In darkness, trying to detect the sparse scattering of randomly arriving photons is too difficult for the eyes of most daytime animals. 
But for night creatures, it's just a matter of adaptation. One of these adaptations is size. Take the tarsier, whose eyeballs are each as big as its brain, giving it the biggest eyes compared to head size of all mammals. If humans had the same brain-to-eye ratio, our eyes would be the size of grapefruits. The tarsier's enlarged orbs haven't evolved to make it cuter, however, but to gather as much light as possible. Bigger eyes can have larger openings, called pupils, and larger lenses, allowing for more light to be focused on the receptors. While tarsiers scan the nocturnal scene with their enormous peepers, cats use gleaming eyes to do the same. Cats' eyes get their shine from a structure called the tapetum lucidum that sits behind the photoreceptors. This structure is made from layers of mirror-like cells containing crystals that send incoming light bouncing back towards the photoreceptors and out of the eye. This results in an eerie glow, and it also gives the photoreceptors a second chance to detect photons. In fact, this system has inspired the artificial cat's eyes we use on our roads. Toads, on the other hand, have adapted to take it slow. They can form an image even when just a single photon hits each photoreceptor per second. They accomplish this with photoreceptors that are more than 25 times slower than human ones. This means toads can collect photons for up to four seconds, allowing them to gather many more than our eyes do at each visual time interval. The downside is that this causes toads to react very slowly because they're only receiving an updated image every four seconds. Fortunately, they're accustomed to targeting sluggish prey. Meanwhile, the night is also buzzing with insects, such as hawk moths, which can see their favorite flowers in color, even on a starlit night. They achieve this by a surprising move, getting rid of details in their visual perception. Information from neighboring photoreceptors is grouped in their brains, so the photon catch of each group is higher, compared to individual receptors. However, grouping photoreceptors loses details in the image, as fine details require a fine grid of photoreceptors, each detecting photons from one small point in space. The trick is to balance the need for photons with the loss of detail to still find their flowers. Whether eyes are slow, enormous, shiny, or coarse, it's the combination of these biological adaptations that gives nocturnal animals their unique visual powers. Imagine what it might be like to witness through their eyes the world that wakes up when the sun goes down. Goats with night vision. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for that, Zoya. That was very interesting and topical. So I think that is our show for today. Thank you very much, Reshma, for joining us. My pleasure. It yeah. was fun. I was yeah. actually um, yeah. crapping myself beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting here with my rescue remedy across from Doug going, oh, my God. But it was very enjoyable. So good. thank you for the invitation. It's been no fun. No problem. No, it was great information. Very, very yeah. good. Oh, yeah. That's good. Okay, so that is our show. Um, be sure to join us next week when we will have another show, possibly uh, another interview. Uh, also tune in to the other two uh, radio shows on the SOT Radio Network. One is tomorrow and one is on Sunday. And you can tune in by just going to sot.radio.net and they'll give you a countdown there of when it's going to be happening. So that's it. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.